0: Gentlemen! Start your engine! Booster. Go. Retro. Go. Vital. We're go fly. Guidance. Guidance goes. Atomic batteries to power. Surgeon. Go fly. Ecom. We're go flight. GNC. We're go. Tell Go. Control. Go fly. Procedures. Go. Inco. Go. FAO. We are go. I'm completely operational and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. Network. Go. Covering. Go! .com. We're go fly. Time circuits on. Flux capacitor. Fluxing. Engine running. Launch control, this is Houston. We are go for launch. Very bad feeling about this. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Launch
1: speed! 21 gigawatts! ready to Engage. Have
0: fun storming the
1: castle. Live from the bunker, it's Sci-Fi For Me Radio.
0: Hi. My name is Anne Lobs with Sci-Fi for Me Radio, and through the magic of the pneumatic interwebs, I'm talking to author Grady Hendricks here on this episode of Live from the Bunker. He has a new paperback called Paperbacks from Hell. I'm sorry, I have to say it that way. And a little bit about horror in general. So I know I could blab on about all the things you have done, but say no one's ever heard of you. What have you done, Mr. Hendricks?
1: Oh, I'm just a person just like everyone. <laughs> um, I, I, I write mostly I write uh, movies and um, uh, books. My first one was horror store about a haunted Ikea. And then I had my best friend's exorcism about two kids in the 80s who become convinced they're possessed by Satan. And that was out last year and just out in paperback this summer. And then, like you said, paperbacks from hell about the paperback horror boom of the 70s and 80s is coming out on the 19th, which is Tuesday. Um, and like you mentioned, it's a paperback about paperback. So it's a meta. Paperback.
0: <laughs> and not only that, but you have done a cookbook with your spouse, oh, yeah. yes. illustrated by the guy who did the art for action philosophers. So I am so jealous.
1: Yeah, no, Ryan's great. Uh, it's, it was a comic book cookbook, which we were surprised no one had done before. Uh, <laughs> and I knew Ryan from some other stuff. And I, I emailed him to ask if he knew anyone who uh, drew in his style, little realizing that, you know, comic artists are always broke and he needs to do it himself.
0: And for anyone who wants to check out this comic book cookbook, it's called Dirty Candy, and I, it's a treat. So why a book about books, especially paperbacks from that era of 70s and 80s?
1: Um, because they were there. Uh, <laughs> You know, my I've been writing about paperbacks uh, for a long time for TOR. And okay. editor, Jason Lukulik at Quirk, he really liked my columns. And he called me one day and said, you know, um, would you consider doing a book about these? And I sort of was like, yeah, well, yeah, just all you got to do is ask. Uh, <laughs> okay. And so it just sort of uh, unraveled from there.
0: Okay. So I've read and... Also, everyone can visit GradyHendrix.com. And I started reading a bunch of those, and that was such, oh, my God, such a blast from the past. Um, And funnily enough, I pulled out some books from my library getting ready for this, and they were some of the books you mentioned as the big three. The Other, The Exorcist, and Rosemary's Baby. Now, only The Rosemary's Baby was my mother's 1968 Wow. edition. But can you talk a little bit, why those three? Why were they the big three? Um Well, you know, horror wasn't
1: really a, a fiction genre until those books happened. There wasn't a horror category. There was romance, there were westerns, there was men's adventure, all that stuff. Um, but really the only horror novel that had been on the bestseller list, or at least sort of the year-end top 10 uh, bestseller list was uh, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca back in 1940. Okay. In Rosemary's Baby hit. And in 71, uh, The Exorcist and The Other both hit the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. And then it didn't hurt that The Exorcist and uh, Rosemary's Baby both got movies that sort of became classics. Mm-hmm. And that really started a stampede for horror. You know, it created a category. Everything that horror is now comes from one of those three books to a large extent. Okay. Uh, and on top of that, those books did really, really well in paperback. And paperback, genre paperbacks were sort of flailing about at that time. Okay, they were reprints of pulp, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and um, uh, Doc Savage and uh, things like that. And so these really, you know, put a huge, uh, put a lot of wind in the sails for the paperback category. And especially paperback originals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and really, you know, and like everything in publishing, the second you got a hit, everyone jumps on board, yeah. it's a bubble and explodes and everyone goes broke.
0: What were the main differences between, you know, like the the mysteries of the 40s and 50s and then 60s and 70s and 80s? I remember what I saw when I was a kid at the grocery store. But what would you say are the main differences from these eras in your book?
1: Well, the 60s was really most horror in the 60s was I mean, not all of it i, I don't want to tar it all with a wide brush, but a lot of it was pretty musty. I mean it was still giant monsters in in film it was giant monsters and in hammer uh with you know vampires and velvet capes in television, it was the monsters um and in books, it was really sort of um very retro flavored um mm-hmm. But in the meantime, in real life, you know, you had Vietnam going on, uh, birth control was becoming more widespread, abortion became illegal a little later on. Like, I mean, all these things were happening in the world and horror really wasn't reflecting it. And so Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and The Other were the first three books that were sort of considered adult horror. You know, they were were reflecting the world around them.
0: Okay, that kind of leads into my next question. Was it aimed at mom- Going through the grocery store? Was it aimed at kids? Because I remember I read these because they were around the house and I could get my hands on them. Plus, I could go buy them. Not like an R-rated movie that I couldn't go into unless I snuck in.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the thing with those three books is they were all aimed at an adult audience. Those were all marketed as general fiction, yeah. uh, but, you know, but also, you know, when they realized that they were doing so well and there was a whole occult boom going on at the time. Ouija boards were getting popular by Parker Brothers. Uh, Anton, mm-hmm. Church of Satan was getting a lot of publicity. Astrology was big. Um, so, you know, they, they just sort of happened to hit at the right moment. Um, now, what happened was sort of a couple of different moments after those books came out. Really, right at first, everyone started repackaging old pulp or even stuff that wasn't horror with Satan on the cover somehow. You know, <laughs> okay, we'd, yeah, we'd get Satan in there or have a really you know a drawing of some half-naked woman draped across an altar about to be sacrificed. We assume for a satanic cult. I mean, it could have uh-huh. been Freemasons. We don't know. Um, <laughs> but so. So that was okay. And then everyone started doing these possession and exorcism novels. And then in terms of paperbacks, you know, there was a whole wave of Catholic exploitation. So, I mean, this stuff was really being marketed um, to anyone who would buy it. Um, okay. And, you know, and I got to say from a, from a sort of woman's fiction point of view, one of the biggest influences on this first wave was Gothic romances
0: coming Definitely. out. Definitely.
1: Yeah. You know, um, and those were really interesting uh, because the gothics, which were usually, you know, for people who don't know, um, a, a young governess or someone would go to an a old dark house, castle, keep, remote tower, lighthouse, and she would meet the dark and brooding lord of the manor who she would hate but love, but he'd have a dark secret and all and she'd be menaced. And the interesting thing about those is they really um, – they they made they put horror sort of back at home. You know, mm-hmm. wasn't people in Europe finding you know um, you know old curses or something? Suddenly, horror was this thing happening where people lived in your house. It was all about like within the family, who you okay. know, that kind of thing. Um, and that was one thing that was really. I mean, the other aside, which was about kids. I mean, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist are really directly about uh, mothers and, and their children.
0: Yeah because my mother remembers Rosemary's baby is terrifying her before my brother was born so that she was not a horror fan.
1: Right. Well, and that's the thing though. These were such cultural landmarks as Rosemary's baby and the exorcist in particular, everyone was picking them up, even if just to see what other people were talking about, even yeah. if it the wasn't their thing.
0: What now let's go into about the covers themselves, because I would say if I was thinking about these paperbacks, I would say weird lettering, uh, foil, foil titles, creepy children, raised embossed covers. What what are hallmarks if I look at these and I say, yeah, that's a 70s, 80s paperback?
1: Yeah, well, the foil stuff, that really came in the 80s, but you definitely have it pegged. I mean, you know, it depends on the publisher, but really, um, they were they were covers usually, often, often, featuring clowns, dolls, or skeletons. Doing- yep don't normally associate with clowns, dolls, or skeletons, either killing people or playing the banjo or riding a horse or, you know, getting <laughs> married, um, or just looking spooky. There were the um there was the uh die cut covers where you'd take yes. a picture of a house and a little girl's looking out a window and the window's cut out of the cover and you open
0: mm-hmm.
1: that back art and the little girls actually, you know, got the the tail of a snake or something. Um, and so and all that stuff was really Covers were really an arms race to see who could capture reader attention, um, and and the people behind it were the art directors at each of the okay directors. And the art directors were really the kings of their domain. Um, there were there was one or two female art directors, pretty notable ones, but mostly it was men, and they usually had vice president or some kind of executive status, and they really called the shots. If if Jim Plumieri decided that. Everything was going to be white covers this year. You would see white everywhere, or someone like um, um milford Milford uh, sorry, Milton Charles would decide that red was going to be the big cover and mm-hmm. everything would be red and so one of the things that was interesting, maybe just to me, but horror covers and romance covers became the last refuge of painted covers ah okay the brush strokes, and a lot mm-hmm. of it the horror boom died a lot of these cover artists moved into romance. Um, mm. So, uh, but but it was interesting because you were coming out of the 50s, sort of the, the 30s and 40s and and maybe a lot of the 50s, you had people painting like sort of action scenes. You know, it's a guy in a scuba suit with a spear gun and yeah. then a girl in a bikini draped around his ankles. And and it was really um, painted figurative art that was sort of the in, a scene from the interior of the book or, or okay. a compilation of scenes and then what happened with the new wave of science fiction in the uh late 50s and into the 60s you had people doing really abstract covers um you know they'd be like really stylized people uh in general fiction were with photographs and stuff yeah and the new wave of science fiction didn't sell i okay. mean and and a lot of the sales department and marketing people blame these covers they said they're too depressing they look like they look like they look socialist mm-hmm. um and so people like Milton Charles and, and Jim Plumieri and other art directors, they wanted to bring back painted covers because they didn't want to use photographs because then you had to have a model. They thought people would they want to see themselves as the character. They don't want to see a model playing that character. So okay. Realistic painted covers that took a scene from the novel and, or an element from the novel and put it on the cover. And the problem was there weren't enough people who knew how to do that. Everyone was okay. doing abstract art at that point. So- mm-hmm. Guys sort of raised this entire, by themselves, teaching classes, an entire generation of these figurative artists who uh, were much in demand until the early 90s. And, and then sort of as digital came in and no one wanted to see brushstrokes anymore. They wanted to see covers that looked photorealistic. These guys all sort of like moved into other fields.
0: That brings to my next question is, was there a house style? Or did publishers tend to do the same thing? Because I remember, you know, Zebra books looked one way. Sure. Onyx looked another way. Dell looked another way.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that was often to do with the imprint. Like Zebra, um, it was almost always, depending on the year, but often a skeleton playing piano or delivering. Or like sitting in a chair. Sitting in a chair against a black background. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, one of the funny things is most of the artists who did these covers really prided themselves on reading the manuscript before they painted the cover. And the only one I heard artists say they never bothered to read the manuscript was Zebra. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and then you had Leisure, and Leisure usually had really over-the-top, grotesque covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, places like Pocket, where Milton Charles was, they're the people who did V.C. Andrews. Yes, Okay they really Milton Charles really believed he started out really anti foil, anti embossing, anti die cut. And then when he saw the response, he really embraced that stuff. So pocket always had super classy covers with lots of gimmicks. Um, Dell abyss, which came along at the very end that, you know, that was Jean Cavello's trying to put stuff on the market that didn't look like anything else. So those covers were super abstract mm-hmm. I mean, they, like Francis Bacon paintings. Oh um, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so everyone had their own style because also you had so many books coming out that except for some blockbuster names like Stephen King or Dean Koontz or Anne Rice or V.C. Andrews, you were really fighting for shelf space. And your number one weapon to get someone to pick up the book and fondle it, and that was the first step on potentially buying it, was the cover.
0: To have a face out instead of a spine and having, like, I remember Audrey Rose.
1: Oh, remember sure. Me? Yeah. Now,
0: can you describe that one?
1: Well, Audrey Rose, and there's so many Audrey Rose spinoffs, but it's usually features a little girl who looks evil and lots and lots of fire. Yes. Which and made you- really dynamic orange and red covers.
0: See, I remember like you, you saw some eyes and it was die cut and I opened it up and it was a girl standing in fire.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and those, and that was sort of what they stuck with for all the Audrey Rose covers because there were a couple of different uh, sequels.
0: Mm-hmm. So now you, in your book... You're talking about what's worth your time and what's not. But I did have a question. Like, for you, what was the most over-the-top cover you can specifically name?
1: Well, I mean, the two, I think, that kind of live in infamy. One is uh, John Christopher's The Little People, which features Nazi leprechauns sort of pouring out of this castle. Oh. Building bullwhips. And that's (laughs) a lot. That's the first one I came across where I was sort of like, whoa, what what? Um and then the other one that's that's sort of great is uh, it's for Sean Hudson's Spawn, which is about um the reanimated corpses of psychic abortions um that come back uh, after okay. their um their birth mothers or really anyone in the general vicinity. <laughs> The cover for that is this great, really angry-looking baby holding this guy, this screaming human in a test tube, and no one knows who's painted it. I mean, I've talked to everyone, and no one, no collector, no artist, no dealer, no publisher, no art director can ID who painted this. And it's oh. really striking. If you ever see it, that little baby with its big, bulbous brain and bulging eyes will haunt your dreams.
0: Ooh. So what is there any tie-in or corollary between the slasher films, the rise of that era of the eighties and the horror, or is it separate books and movies two oh, separate no. things?
1: Sure. I mean, it wasn't quite that they were feeding off of each other, although there was some back and forthing. but really they were going through the same, um, the same growing pains at the same time. So in the seventies, horror was for adults i mean it was the exorcist which you know whether you decide that the exorcist is about barf and head spinning or you decide it's about deep weighty catholic themes of guilt and redemption you know the exorcist is really a book written for adults same with rosemary's baby that's written specifically for women who have are pregnant you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah target audience there if you want to put it down i mean anyone could read it, but that's the people who'd really get freaked out um and then you had later books, uh, Harvest Home, um, by Thomas Trium, the Amityville horror, all this stuff was written for adults. Mm-hmm. It Wasn't until the eighties that horror started to be accessible to kids. And that you see it in the slasher movies as horror got more tongue in cheek and more self-referential. And you see it in the books as horror sort of got more and more colorful and gaudy and kind of crazy, um, and more aimed at kids. And, um, one of the big things that happened is in the mid '80s you had the whole splatterpunk movement, yeah. which is really a reaction to the moral majority in America. Sort of mm-hmm. the moral majority saying, you know, well these things are going to make your kids a devil worshiper, <laughs> which was so patently ridiculous. Yeah, but you had these authors who were sort of like, oh, you think that's bad? We'll show you bad. <laughs> And sort of, and it was this, it's this real, it sort of started this really tragic trend though, because that was around the same time that serial killers were getting popular.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Was the
1: Silence of the Lambs in 88. Mm-hmm. And in 91, Silence of the Lambs won like every Oscar. And so suddenly you had all these books all trying to top each other, all about serial killers or stalkers or, or masked killers. And um, they were all trying to sort of outgore and outgross each other. Okay. And, um, and it really was, it, it sort of turned into, and there are a few exceptions. I mean, Joe Lansdale and Jack Ketchum and Poppy Z. Bright were all doing very interesting things. But a lot of what was out there was stuff that was basically an endless stream of books about women getting raped and murdered. Yeah, um, uh, mm. yeah and it was really, I mean, the, the brutality was all highly sexualized in some of these books. And, and, you know, it hit a point where some of the cover artists were saying, you know, I'm not even going to these, do these covers anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. Jill Bauman famously, um, you know, she is a cover artist who refused to do uh, dead bodies. So she would draw dolls. Um, okay. and those became a, a real marketing point and she became famous for those in part. But that was sort of her reaction to being asked to paint so much gore is to start doing dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of artists moved into romance because it was just sort of more, you know, they got to live with these oil paintings in their house and it's... <laughs> They'd rather have a woman locked in an embrace with a cowboy than like, you know, a giant like rat with its bowels hanging out.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, I mean, there was one artist, Richard Newton, who said to me, I can't remember what the book was, because his wife finally looked at him and says, you're either finishing that painting and getting out of the house or we're getting divorced.
0: Oh, okay. Well, when you're working with Quirk, your publisher for Horror Store and um, My Best Friend's Exorcism you have graphics you have illustrations that play a part in the story um how has that been working with quirk as opposed to another publisher with these books oh um,
1: i've been with people like bigger publishers and there's not a lot of back and forth between the writer and the book designer or the art director um and with quirk because they're smaller um they that's much easier um okay. it's a smaller feedback loop so it's actually been really great i mean with horror store that really was just going to be shaped like an IKEA catalog, and then um, someone I can't remember who said, "Well, why don't we have a picture of the furniture at the top of the chapters?" And then I said, "Well, why doesn't the furniture get more and more horrific as we go through?" And we need marketing copy with that. And then the art director was like, "Well, then we need order forms and like shipping yes. labels." Mm-hmm. And so. The ideas just sort of fed off of each other, which is really nice. And in a lot of bigger publishers, everything's very compartmentalized and, and really sales drives uh, the art direction to a large extent. And so the author sort of the last person anyone wants to hear from. So quirk has been really nice in that regard.
0: And I remember, and I just got my best friend's exorcism and I, I kept looking at the front and the back and the stickers and, oh yeah, I remember that from four star video. Right. Oh, so how did you did you intentionally say I want all of this on the cover? And
1: Oh no no, that was really Doogie. Uh Doogie Horner is the art director right now for Quirk. And uh okay. I actually know him. We both go to this uh twenty-four-hour horror film screening series. It's like a twenty-four hour marathon every Halloween. And so actually before I even knew he worked at Quirk, I had spilled a cooler of beer down his back. At one
0: oh, of- bonding.
1: Um, exactly. And so he really gets the genre. And mm. He had talked originally about doing a painted cover, like one of the old paperback covers, and then he came up with the idea of doing it like a VHS box art. Um, mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's all Doogie.
0: I saw that and I'm like, Ugh, four-star video, the mom-and-pop stores of my childhood. So,
1: Yeah, although it's funny, I have had people at signings, a couple of them, uh, come up and say, why would, what, because it's got the Be Kind Rewind sticker, and they're like, why would you rewind a book? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> they give me this blank look as, as if I've just said, "No, no, no, it's a Marvel Um, You know, they have no idea that a videotape existed. Oh, before.
0: how sad! It
1: was Fifty cents.
0: And the days where you had only four multiplexes to sneak into the R-rated movie. Oh, exactly. My oh my gosh.
1: Well, I wasn't allowed really to see R-rated movies, so I had to read Fangoria and then the novelizations and pretend I'd seen the movie. <laughs>
0: I actually managed to sneak into a couple and it felt so daring. You're getting the ticket for the PG and then sneaking oh, right. into the R. Oh, yeah. My my daring youth. Um, so I have mentioned GradyHendrix.com and that has the link, links to all of your tour stuff um, and so on. What are some other resources where people can find you? Um,
1: well, I mean, I'm on tour every week. Right now I'm bringing the um, Stephen King, the great Stephen King reread to an oh, end. Oh boy five-year project to read everything he wrote so it's in, <laughs> in two weeks i've made it and i survived oh my god um but mostly go to my website that has the links to the twitters and the facebook's and the the everything the uh if okay. i ever wanted to feel like i was in your house like some kind of black mold gradyhendrix.com is the place to have that feeling
0: oh okay but are you are you still working with the north uh the new york asian film festival
1: I just sit on the board these days. Um, mm-hmm. Basically means I, I drink my ties, and they do all the work and I get the credit. Sweet. Uh, those guys have really like taken it in a whole new direction or doing great stuff. But all I do is sit back and watch and and feel really happy. I don't have to be out there hauling prints around.
0: Well, oh, lucky you. Well, I will recommend this to everybody. It's coming out next week, I believe. What's the date on yeah. it? Tuesday, September
1: 19th, a day that will live in infamy Oh.
0: Paperbacks from hell. I'm sorry. I have to say it. I can't yeah. help it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us and going down memory lane with um, my misspent youth in bookstores. <laughs> I
1: think every youth is misspent to some degree. Isn't that what it's for?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Except now I have all these paperbacks and it's just oh, I love it. I do, but I can't get rid of them. Just can't. No. Do it.
1: Don't get rid of them. I'll buy them off you if you want. <laughs> These things are vanishing. I can't tell you how many paperback, used paperback stores I've gone into in the past year where they're shutting down. You know, their, oh. their shelves are getting smaller. They're not taking new stock. It's, this stuff's
0: going. Oh boy. So grab one last question. So there is a market for collecting these?
1: Um, not a big one. Paper, okay. Horror paperbacks, the market's brand new. So if you ever wanted to get into it, that was the time to buy. <laughs> okay. yeah. It'll never decrease in value.
0: Okay, well, so look for that in the stores next week, Paperbacks and Pell. I highly recommend Horror Store. I have an Ikea moving in in the next town, and I am terrified. Thank you, Grady Hendricks. No, um, thanks for having me. Okay, and Sci-Fi for Me is on all of the social media. You can drop us a line at scififorme.com or anywhere you have a social media. We are there. So this has been Live from the Bunker with author Grady Hendricks. Have a great evening, everyone.
1: This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio, copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. And remember, no matter where you go, there you are.